special edition of Honestly Speaking, where telling the truth is still a revolutionary act in a time of universal deceit. This is the post-democratic debate edition of Honestly Speaking this week, coming out on a Thursday. I'll be back on the regular schedule Tuesdays next week, but I was traveling. As I mentioned, I was in Westerville, Ohio for the CNN New York Times Democratic Debate number four. And uh, it was, um, I was there for a couple days and it was perfect weather, by the way, like beautiful, perfect fall weather. There wasn't a cloud in the sky for three days. It was beautiful. And um, the people there were really, really nice. I, I really enjoy the opportunity to travel, especially to middle America because it just gives you a different perspective. You know, sometimes you get caught in the bubble in Washington, you know, but, um, but I do get to travel a lot and, and I like to talk to people and I had an opportunity to do that while I was in Westerville. It, what a neat little town. Shout out to Westerville, Ohio. John Kasich's hometown, by the way. I like Governor Kasich. He's, he can be a curmudgeon, but he's super smart. His heart's in the right place. He was a great governor for Ohio. He was a great congressman. And I, um, I ended up actually voted for him in the primary during the presidential election. He was not my first choice. Marco Rubio was. I've said it many times. Um... But uh, by the time the primary came to New Jersey, it was only Cruz, Kasich and Trump on the ticket. I couldn't stand Ted Cruz. I just think he's a jerk. So I ended up casting a ballot for Kasich in the primary. And then in the general, everyone knows that I voted for Evan McMullen. But anyway, that's an aside. Westerville, Ohio. Yeah, uh, Otterbein University was the location of the debate and um, neat little campus there. Um, and I just, you know, it was, they had this like Main Street area. I think it was called State Street, actually. And it was up uptown Westerville. And they had all these really cool shops and custard places and antique stores. It was just really cool. I spent some time in the local antique shop, the Westerville Antique Shop met this really nice lady named Teresa. She has family from Jersey, not too far from where I grew up. So we struck up a conversation and they had a lot of cool stuff in the antique store. I like to go antiquing. Um, yeah, I, I know I'm such a nerd, but I like that stuff. I just appreciate history and older things and especially Americana type stuff. And they had old life magazines, and they were really well-preserved from the 60s, from the 40s. And I went through a bunch of them and they had a couple of, with Kennedy on the cover. Um, they had one with, with that I ended up buying with Jacqueline Kennedy and the kids at the funeral after JFK had been assassinated. That cover of Life magazine. They had a Muhammad Ali cover from 1964, I think it was. Um, I got that one. They had one of Dewey when Dewey ran against Truman from the 40s. So I got that. And then I saw something that reminded me of my grandmother, who is no longer with us. She died about 13 years ago, but still my grandmother was cool. And I referenced things about her a lot. And she used to like to type. And she had one of those old typewriters, like with the with the big buttons and like the ribbon, the whole thing, like old school typewriters. And my grandmother, Gloria, was notorious for writing scorching letters. 
if you are on the receiving end of a Gloria Setmayer letter, watch out. So to this day, her letter writing lives in infamy. And anytime, um, you know, I need to send a terse email, my husband will say, are you writing a Gloria Setmayer email? (laughs) So um, I saw they had an old school 1920s Underwood typewriter. And Underwood used to be, they were like the number one typewriter company in the country in the early 20th century. And they were founded in like 1895 in New York City. And by the 20s, they'd sold like 5 million typewriters. Really cool, old school American company. And uh, Ernest Hemingway typed with Underwood. So they're like a part of history and I I had to buy it. So of course I thought, how am I going to get the hell? Am I going to get this thing back? Because it's heavy as hell, um, but I was I managed to squeeze it in my carry-on luggage, my my roller bag, and stuff some clothes around it to cushion it. <laughs> I bought another bag to put my clothes in, and I got it back. Shout out to Southwest because they don't charge you to check bags; they're the best. So anyway, so I had a good time there. Met some like I said, nice people. I was surprised at how many people actually recognized me. I was incognito there, but uh, a lot of people stopped me and they wanted to talk politics and I didn't mind. I I don't mind engaging people. Um, and it was just neat. A lot of people there, that area is, um, middle-class, upper middle-class. So they were not necessarily Trump fans, but Mitt Romney won that area, but Hillary Clinton won it. Trump did not in 2016. Um, however, there were people who said that, yep, they voted for Trump, but they would not vote. They don't want to vote for him again. However, if the Democrats put up Elizabeth Warren, they will not vote for Elizabeth Warren. They will go back and hold their nose and vote for Trump again. I heard that over and over again. But guess who they said they would vote for? Joe Biden. Yes. And I keep telling people that he's the guy that people feel comfortable with because he's experienced from day one. And... His debate performances have been underwhelming. Uh, You know, after every debate, you know, I'm just kind of like, oh, Joe, why couldn't you have just done this or that? I mean, the last debate... His most recent one, uh, he did better. He wasn't, it wasn't as bad as the, as the first he's getting better. And he finally, he was very strong in a couple of areas, but he also disappeared at some points, long periods of time. And he wasn't clear on, on some of his policies to, to make it easy for people to understand because he's so smart and he knows so much because he has so much experience that he tries to kind of spit it all out and it just overwhelms people and you lose the overall message. Um, and some of those other folks are a lot more polished when it comes to that. They, their policies may be wrong, but they present it better. And we live in a visual age, visual age and people, you know, they have to feel like they're connected to your message. And I just, I'm concerned that Biden is getting bogged down by too much detail and wonkiness, policy wonkiness and, and missing the broader, broad strokes kind of giving people a reason to vote for him. Um, but um, I, you know, he's, he, we see that he's slipping in the polls. Warren was rising. I don't know if the debate is going to change that dynamic at all, uh, because the people who really shine during the debate were the, the middle tier candidates. And 
just the fact that there were 12 people on the stage is ridiculous. I know I'm not the only person that's tired of this stable of people on the stage. Enough now. Come on, DNC. Don't make the mistake that Republicans made in 2016 by allowing all of these vanity candidates on the stage. They don't have a chance. They're two percenters. Okay, they're like not above two percent in the polls. Enough with them already. Enough. Only seven of them have qualified for the November debate. There's another one coming up in in November. I think the 20th in Atlanta. This is the MSNBC Washington Post debate. But I think the American people are getting fatigued with all these people already. So I um, I was in the debate hall. They did a we had a chance to have a walkthrough beforehand. And uh, it was really cool, by the way. CNN did an amazing job. They built an entire set and made it look like a, a theater out of the gymnasium. It was actually the college's rec center and you would never have known it. They did an amazing job, like 15,000 man hours and 40 semi trucks worth of equipment. Pretty, the the logistics are just amazing. You just don't, you don't think about what it takes to put off, put on things like that. Um, But anyway, I I looked at that stage and I just thought like 12 people, it's just too, it's too much. It's too much. But the people who did have moments and who were able to stand out, I thought, were Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. I know everyone was gunning for Warren because she is now the co-front runner. Fine. And she took a couple of, she, uh, Amy Klobuchar landed some haymakers on Elizabeth Warren. She was on top of her game. She was sharp. She had amazing one-liners and uh, she, she, it was, she did a great job and she came across as pragmatic. And when she said, um, you might have a plan, but there's a difference between a plan and a pipe dream. <laughs> yes, Amy Klobuchar. Like she, she, uh, she had a couple of those. She went after Elizabeth Warren, but she didn't do it in a way. It wasn't the malicious way, the way like Kamala Harris went after Biden. It wasn't like that. There was a difference. And Kamala, uh, I'm sorry, but. Uh, I'm, I'm over her too. I mean, I was never a big fan of hers. There's just a lot of about her personality that's off putting to me, but, um, I just, uh, she, she was, she just doesn't seem, you can't figure out where, where she stands. She, she changes her positions on things a lot. She repeats the same things kind of canned, um, uh, campaign stump speech lines. She's just not catching fire and I don't see her gaining support in the places that a Democrat would need to win. So, and her poll numbers have shown that. And, uh, she, she had this really weird moment at the debate where I was just like, really? When she was explaining was the foreign policy question, which is, you know, really important when you're president of the United States, foreign policy, you have the most unilateral effect impact on foreign policy. You don't have Congress necessarily to balance you out on some things as we are watching unfold as Donald Trump made the decision that he made in Turkey. I mean, in Syria, that's slaughtering the Kurds and throwing the Middle East into total chaos. Congress couldn't stop him. He's the commander in chief. So Kamala Harris is giving an answer, responding to a question about Russia and Putin and what you do. And she's explaining that she's on the Senate Intelligence Committee and the seriousness of the threats and blah, blah, blah. And she attacks Donald Trump. Okay. Then she goes, dude, gotta go. 
What? What's with the Ebonics, Kamala? Dude gotta go. This isn't a Jerry Springer episode. You're you're running to be president of the United States. Come on. Come on. I just thought it was tacky and unnecessary. You're smart. You were the AG of California. Like, what are you doing? I don't know. So... I'm over her. Uh, you know, um, she needs to go. Booker had a decent night, but he, you know, again, you know, I was in the spin room the, in the press gallery area watching the debate because they wouldn't let us in the actual debate hall um, during the debate. So I was watching it with a bunch of other reporters and like the wa- the Washington press corps that do this for a living. And um, I was writing for CNN.com and I wrote some hot take, a hot take on, on the debate. You can always read it there at CNN.com and also on my Twitter feed. But, uh, and just like there, people were laughing. The reporters were laughing at Cory Booker because he was just so uh, Mr. Like we all have to come together and Oh, come on. I mean, I appreciate the unity discussion, but he's another one. He's auditioning to be vice president clearly because he knows he doesn't stand a chance either. His girlfriend was there, Rosario Dawson. She was there making an appearance, looking lovely. Um, she's actually really nice. I've met her before at the White House Correspondents Dinner Brunch a couple of years ago. And she's actually really, really, really nice. And she's really pretty in person, too. Um, but, uh, you know, Tom Steyer, what were you doing there? He didn't know anything about foreign policy. Andrew Yang. <sighs> You're never going to be president. This thing, just like those guys, this isn't, it's too serious at this point for us to keep playing around with these vanity candidates. It just is. Look at what's going on in the world. We have the president of the United States that just lit a match in the Middle East. He's destroying alliances, destroying America's standing in the world. And we don't have time for people to, you know, have social experiments in the White House. We, we, we're living through that right now. It's time to get serious with the top four or five candidates. And that's it now. Enough. Castro, Gabbard, Steyer, Yang, um, Booker. Go, enough with them. Enough. Harris, enough. It needs to be Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren. That's it. That's it. Unless somebody else is going to jump in the race that's independently wealthy enough to do it at this point in the game. That's what you're dealing with, folks. So I thought that there were three hours is too long. I know I'm not alone. I, I, you know, kudos to my CNN colleagues for being, um, moderators and and doing a really good job of it. It's not easy to do. Three hours is just too long. You lose people. It was CNN's ratings. It was the lowest rated debate thus far because people are just tired of it. Three hours. We cover this and I was over it. Two hours is enough. That's it. I don't know. Uh, But we did see some, some highlights. Uh, like I said, Amy Klobuchar, I was t- live tweeting it <laughs> that she was throwing haymakers at, at Elizabeth Warren and, and she landed a few punches. So did Pete Buttigieg, who I've always liked because I just find him to be very thoughtful. And in this day and age, someone that's thoughtful, I mean, I don't even have to agree with what, half of what he's saying. It's just that the fact that he's thoughtful about it is refreshing. He's got a very bright future in the Democratic Party, I think. Um... 
he takes some positions that are problematic to me. Like he wants to get rid of the electoral colleges. I don't agree with, <clears throat> I don't know if he's serious about that or if he's just playing to the left flank, but no, his abortion stuff. But at this point, I don't care. I don't care. I just want someone that's going to be smart and thoughtful and reasonable and pragmatic when it comes to trying to put the pieces back together after this China in a bull shop crap that we've got with Trump. And the area that where Joe Biden should have have really shined was on foreign policy. I mean, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was vice president for eight years. He's he's been around the world. People love him. He knows what's going on. He may not always be right about foreign policy affairs, but at least he's informed. He knows what's going on. And he's not going to defy his generals. He's not going to betray our allies. He's not going to bow down to dictators like Putin and and Erdogan and and Jing, uh, Xi Jinping in, in China. But he flubbed that question also on foreign policy a little bit. And I, th- I thought that it was a missed opportunity. I mean, parts of his answer were strong. He did remind people that he does have these relationships around the world, that he has been in the situation room. And that's important for people to know. That's why I still support Biden. He's ready on day one. And he finally said that. I've been, say- I've been saying this for months. That's what he needs to remind people every single time he talks. I've been there. I have the experience. I was vice I was a heartbeat away from the presidency for eight years. I'm ready on day one. We don't have time for anyone to have a learning curve. No one else in this race has the experience I have. And he finally said that. Thank God. Those are a couple of his high points. But he didn't take the opportunity to compare and contrast him and his vision and what Donald Trump is doing to destroy America standing in the world and his erratic, ignoramus approach to foreign policy. I just thought he missed that opportunity. It wasn't clear. But Buttigieg came in and filled that void and explained how he, the the need to restore the credibility of the United States. He explained what's going on in Syria and Turkey and why it's consequential. Um, And it was, it was, uh, he was tough. And I don't think a lot of people had seen that side of, of Pete, of Pete Buttigieg. He's, um, you saw a passion from him and I thought he, he, he showed signs of being presidential, which is important for perception purposes for people. So I thought Pete Buttigieg won that debate and, uh, with Amy Klobuchar at a close second, they really, they, they picked up the, the, the moderate lane to show in case, you know, since Biden's faltering a little bit in these formats, they came in with really common sense, pragmatic approaches to things and taking that moderate lane, which is important. Um, that's a, you know, oh, I have to address one of the, one of the points in the, in the debate when Biden went after Warren over her role in, in, uh, developing the consumer finance, uh, protection board. And I can't remember if it was Politico. Someone did a whole long expose on how Elizabeth Warren actually did not get along with Obama or Biden and how she was kind of a thorn in their side. And they let her run that agency to kind of get her off their backs. There is no love lost between them. 
And Biden went after, gave her credit about the financial control board thing. And uh, I mean, the, the financial protection, consumer protection board. And she, you know, <laughs> said that she thanked Obama. She didn't give Biden any credit for it. And he, he kind of got in her face about it. But and, and some people are like, oh, he was mansplaining and blah, blah, blah. Not, you know what? He was just being honest. He helped her. He did help her get the vote. She didn't get that that passed with no, uh, no help. As vice president, he's the president of the Senate. And he was a senator for decades. So he leveraged those relationships to help get the votes, to get that, the votes passed, to get that board created. That agency would not have been created without Joe Biden's efforts. So... A lot of people don't realize the role that the vice president plays when it comes to legislative agendas. And part and Barack Obama partially picked Biden because of his relationships in the Senate, his long-standing elder statesman status there, and his foreign policy experience. They had, they had to balance that ticket out because Obama had no experience. He didn't have those relationships in the, on Capitol Hill, and he had zero foreign policy experience. So I think that Biden was catching, I think he caught some unfair criticism for going after Biden that way. I mean, going after Warren that way, but whatever. People are just too sensitive because Amy Klobuchar went after her way harder than Biden did, but nobody said anything because it was it was woman on woman. <laughs> and I made a note of that in my Twitter feed during the um, during the debate that a man couldn't get away with what Klobuchar was doing to Elizabeth to Elizabeth Warren the way she challenged her because he'd get accused of being a sexist or mansplaining and that's exactly what happened to Biden so maybe it's not fair but that's just how people are now so we'll see I don't know if these debates actually move the needle or not it's going to be interesting um, there, there was, uh, when I was out there in Westerville, they had some, some supporters on the corners, like cheering for their candidates and things. And crazy Trump people were out, Trump supporters were out there with their AR 15s walking around being just provocative unnecessarily getting in the faces of the Biden supporters and the Tom Steyer supporters and the Warren people that were out there cheering for their candidates, sign holding and stuff. Man, you could, you could spot a Trump person, a Trump person a mile away. They had Hillary for prison signs. I'm like, let it go already, people, for God's sakes. They're just nuts. They're lunatics. Lunatics. But but it was all peaceful. There were no problems. Just, you know, just political stuff. <laughs> it's campaign season, people. It's campaign season. Um on the on the episode today, um, I probably should have brought this up earlier, but I have Mark Caputo, who is a writer for Politico, and Mark is on the Biden beat of the campaign, and he lives in Florida, so he is in a really important state. He has the pulse on Florida politics, but he's also on the Biden Biden beat for the campaign. So I thought he'd be an interesting person to talk to, get some insight on on what he thought of the debate and what's going on over there in. in Biden world and some dynamics in Florida. Ask him some stuff about Marco Rubio. He has an interesting story about Rubio. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'll be bringing um, Mark on in a couple minutes. I just also wanted to mention a couple other things. Since this is a a special episode, um, I'm just going to bring up a couple other things and then get right into Mark. But this this stuff that's been going on for the last couple days with Syria and Turkey and the president becoming more and more unhinged and erratic, it's just so concerning. 
which is why I was happy that foreign policy came up during the debate and that that people like Buttigieg were able to give strong foreign policy answers because that matters. You know, the president's behavior on the global stage affects every one of us. And Donald Trump, what Donald Trump has done here with Syria and the Kurds is disastrous. You actually see Republicans coming out strong. Even Lindsey Graham, again, his balls dropped again this week and he's gone after Trump because the Kurds are getting slaughtered. Turkey's committing war crimes, for God's sakes. The Russians are coming in. There was a video out on on Twitter of Russian um, uh, contractors, military contractors. They went into an abandoned and evacuated U.S. military installation in northern Syria that uh, our troops had to evacuate because they were getting bombed by uh, the Turks. They needed to get out of there before they were caught in the crossfire of what the Turks were doing with their invasion in the Kurds area. They had to cut and run. That's embarrassing. You know, our, our special forces, they were so upset. I've been following some of my um, foreign policy folks that, that are that cover this issue. And it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Brett McGurk is a good person to follow on Twitter. Brett McGurk. He was a special envoy for that part of the world. And what what he has to say about what's going on him. Richard Engel is another um, good reporter. There's Barbara Starr at CNN. All the news that's coming out about what's happening over there, none of it is good. It's an embarrassment to the United States and it's a betrayal to our allies. And when you have a, a a power vacuum, guess who fills it? Bad actors. This is what's happening, this turmoil now with the Kurds and this part of Syria and what's going on. Russia's coming in. Iran's coming in there. This is all Russia has been trying to get a foothold in this part of the world for a long time. And we're handing it to them. Why? Because Donald Trump said he made a campaign promise to bring our troops home. But at what expense? These aren't endless wars. We're trying to keep ISIS at bay. We're trying to not we're trying to make sure that American journalists aren't beheaded again on YouTube in front of the world by crazy terrorists in that part part of the world. Come on. There is merit to a conversation about our presence in Afghanistan and Iraq and the endless war stuff. There is merit to that. But this move was not the not the right thing to do. He just threw it all into chaos. Years and years of goodwill built up in that part of the world, thrown away, thrown away because Donald Trump, it doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And he's got a, he, once he's got something in his mind, that's it. He's completely irrational. He's not listening to his generals. He's embarrassing the United States and he's now endangering Europe and the U S this fool during a press conference on Thursday, uh, Wednesday, actually said, well, there's 7,000 miles away. There's a lot of sand over there. This is a land dispute. It has nothing to do with us. You know, it's between Turkey and Syria. What? There's a lot. He actually said that. Well, there's a lot of sand over there. Oh my God. Could you be any more ignorant? This has everything to do with us. It does affect us. Guess what? 9-11, those guys... They weren't from America, okay? They were from thousands of miles away from a country that has a lot of damn sand. Saudi Arabia, who you have no problem sending our U.S. troops to, 
because you claim that, oh, Saudi Arabia is going to pay for us to have our troops there. So our troops are mercenaries now. So we can get our troops involved in a war, in a horrible war with Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Iran. We're going to get our send 2000 troops there, but we, but we can't maintain our commitment to the Kurds who have fought side by side with us to defeat ISIS. Unbelievable, this guy. It's so infuriating, infuriating. I'm sick to my stomach over what's happening. And finally, Republicans are standing up. There was a vote in the House to condemn these actions. I think 60 plus Republicans, House Republicans voted for it. And Nancy Pelosi and and the Democratic leadership went to the White House for an emergency meeting, basically. And uh, it, it, it turned into a complete shit show. And Pelosi, Schumer, Steny Hoyer, they walked out of the meeting because they said it was not productive. They wanted to get questions answered by the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs about what the fuck is going on in the Middle East. And Donald Trump just had a meltdown. He didn't like the fact that Republicans were voting against, you know, to chastise him for this move. And you got Lindsey Graham running around saying that that he's going to be Trump's worst nightmare now because of this. We'll see, Lindsay. We'll see. We'll see. But at least people are speaking out because this is out of control. Even Mitch McConnell was condemning what's going on. So we have to pay attention to this. And and all of this is going on in the backdrop of impeachment, which is still chugging away. You had a lot of witnesses still coming up to testify this week. Some defying subpoenas like Rudy Giuliani, who, by the way, breaking news, There is a potential counterintelligence investigation now with him. That's bad. That's bad. It's bad enough that he's under investigation for we're not quite sure what. But when you start talking counterintelligence, that means that there was a national security threat there. Enough for the FBI to open a counterintel investigation. Similar investigation. That's like what the FBI opened up when they found out the Russians were interfering in our elections. They, they see a threat there. So they've been following this. And they, apparently this was way before the Ukraine call and all of that. And we've had former diplomats going, going up to Capitol Hill and spilling the beans. This whole thing with John Bolton, who was not in favor of what was going on in Ukraine uh, and a number of uh, career foreign policy professionals testifying in front of Congress saying there was something not right. They sounded the alarms and it was all, you know, the president was like, let's go through Giuliani. So this is not over. There's still a lot to be uncovered here. And it all all is without question impeachable without question. So hopefully the Democrats don't screw this up and the um, presidential candidates on the Dem side, they need to you know, figure out how to navigate this and, and separate themselves to show the American people that what they're offering is a better vision for this country than what Donald Trump is doing with the chaos chronicles every single day, every day. It just gets worse and worse. And his corruption is beyond the pale. And it's about time that this house of cards came crumbling down, honestly, because we, this country doesn't deserve this. Or maybe we do. I'm not sure, but I sure as hell know I'm going to fight for it to change it because this can't, it can't, we can't keep doing this. We just can't keep going on like this. So on that note, I'm going to bring in uh, Mark Caputo. We're going to talk a little Biden, talk a little bit about Hunter Biden and that con- ongoing controversy. See what he thinks about that. And, uh, 
and uh, he's going to tell a couple of good stories, I think. Um, so, Mark's at Mark's and Hoot. So, next up, Mark Caputo from Politico. This special edition of Honestly Speaking this week, it's a post-debate edition of the podcast. I just got back from Columbus, Ohio, and I had uh, I just talked about my observations there. But I wanted to bring someone in because people know that I've been very vocal about my support for Joe Biden. But I'm getting a little worried about about good old Joe there. And I wanted to bring someone in who is, in fact, covering the Biden campaign. And um, he's also based in Florida, which is a pretty important state. So welcome to Mark Caputo. He's a senior writer with Politico covering Biden, the 2020 campaign, like I said, from the pivotal state of Florida. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Um, Mark and I have actually never met, but we became Twitter buddies a couple years ago, uh, bonding over uh, Dan Bongino. But we'll talk about him at the at the end of this. It's, it's uh, a very funny story for people who don't know, and it's, uh, it's just mind-blowing. But um, Mark... If, if you're going to do it, if you're going to do it, you probably should play some of the audio where he just loses his head. I, I'm funny. going to have to grab a couple of those clips because that's um, so just to, just to tease it. Um, Dan Bongino, who is a Fox guy now, he's a former Secret Service agent. He was running for Congress. He ran for Congress in a couple of places. And Mark was on the beat and and uh, asked him some questions about some things that had been uncovered during the campaign in 2016. And Dan Bongino didn't like it. So we'll, we'll get to that story at the end we have time and I'll pull some of the audio because it's um, it's just it's hilarious actually um, but let's talk about the debate that's what's at top of mind for everyone um, you were not in Ohio but I know that you were watching because I was following your Twitter feed what were your what were your takeaways well I was surprised that a 12 candidate debate wasn't a clown show because <laughs> it's certainly a clown car debate but the debate moderators did a good job so I guess that's the good news also you know Joe Biden Biden has not had a lot of great de- debate performances. In fact, I don't think he's really had any. And he was doing okay, except when you talk to a, a number of women, uh, when it came to the way in which he uh, gotten, let's say, a dispute with Elizabeth Warren over the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And uh, he appeared to be kind of yelling at her, raising his uh, voice and the like. And well, th- that probably wasn't his best moment. The other problem I think that Joe Biden has had is he hasn't always sounded very lucid. Is his He's a man who knows a whole hell of a lot, mm-hmm. and I think he likes to show it off a lot, but he doesn't always put his words together with the best syntax. Now, I, hopefully I'm not being hypocritical. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> no, that made sense, and I've, I've criticized uh, Joe Biden for that in the past, where I've said it's very, been very frustrating because he should make he has to simplify his messaging he tries too hard he sounds that's why senators didn't used to do well in, in presidential campaigns because they're wonky they get into the weeds and numbers people the average person doesn't give two shits about that they want to hear platitudes larger messages and simplified how does this apply to me and Joe Biden's good at that on the stump but I don't in the debate format he's just not he's just not doing it well well, that's true. Even on the stump, I have to say, when, when I witnessed him, is that 
Joe Biden sort of lacks discipline mm. for a man who knows as much as he does yeah. and for a candidate who's as experienced as he is and for a statesman as experienced as he is. He's just not accustomed to having to curtail his words and meet the situation by sometimes adapting to it. Yeah, and this kind of makes sense. He's, what, 76 years old? Yeah. Once you hit that age, you're Stuck accustomed in, uh, in your ways. Yeah. He's a former senator, a former vice president, so all of that makes sense. So, for instance, on the campaign trail, he sometimes asks a yes or no question, and he'll give the longest possible speech. <laughs> he will relate to people individually, right. but he'll go down rabbit holes from space exploration to cancer uh, to climate change and the like. Right. Well, that's the. I think when I say that he's better at it on the stump, I mean his connection with people. Uh, Very much. Which which has always been his strong point. And... He, uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden reminds me of a yellow lab. Yes. Like he's just a he's just like a a very friendly, warm person. And um, I guess I could share this. The other day, because I live in Miami, I ran into, of all all people, I ran into Marco Rubio at dinner with my family. Oh, we're going to talk about too. (laughs) And we just got to chatting, just kind of just a personal hello sort of thing. I've covered Rubio for decades now. And uh, he said, what are you doing? You're just covering Biden? And I said, yeah. And he said, boy, he says, I'll tell you, he's really a great man. He's a decent, decent human being, a really good man. And that was Rubio in kind of a very uh, natural setting. Yeah. And he says that because he, he worked with Biden quite frequently, and, and it's a, an interesting window into Biden's personality said by someone who didn't have to say those things about him in an unplanned setting. Right. And I think that that speaks volumes about the goodwill that Joe Biden actually does have on Capitol Hill. So when he talks about that, he can get things done. Um, I, I he, he knows that those relationships are real, whether that can still happen in this climate now of such tribalism and dishonesty with a lot of senators uh, who are unrecognizable. I'm not quite sure, but that is authentic. And I keep trying to emphasize to people that Joe Biden's wisdom and experience, which he finally brought up last night, um, is is one of his great strengths. But they're just not doing a great job of showcasing his and highlighting his strengths. He's he's just you're right. He, I don't know. What, I don't know. He's stubborn. <laughs> well, it's 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 just the way he is. Some people have great skills, and I think if you look back at Joe Biden's career, his skill has been one. Uh, as a senator and as a vice president, a guy who knows how to get deals done yes. in a legislative process, who can make things happen. One of his strengths is not being on a debate stage. And it showed every time. Yes. And if you look at the broad arc of his polling from the moment he announced, what, April 25th or so, is Biden's polls have, poll numbers, at least nationwide, have been relatively flat. And all of those debate performances had, some of which have been widely panned, haven't really had much of a, an effect on his polling, but that's a problem because he probably wants to grow. So he's remained flat while at least one other candidate, certainly, and most notably Elizabeth Warren, has grown, and now it's a problem for him. Absolutely. Um, uh, since you brought up Rubio, I, I just have to ask, I, I, you know, I supported Marco Rubio during the 2016 campaign. He was my first choice. 
Uh, I never supported Donald Trump. I'm, you know, a never Trump Republican. And I have just been so terribly disappointed in Marco Rubio in, in scenarios where he could have stepped up and challenged Donald Trump on issues that he knows, like China and now this foreign policy debacle that this president's gotten us into, abandoning our allies. What happened to Marco Rubio? Well, yeah, he hasn't gotten up and had press conferences denouncing President Trump's policies in Turkey or in the Middle East the way he would have had Obama been president. That's true. However, Rubio has been vocal on Twitter and in written statements opposing the president's policies there and just describing it as kind of disastrous and terrible. But charitably speaking, and there are uncharitable ways to speak as well, (laughs) Rubio wants to have influence. And Rubio understands that he's got to work. (laughs) Yeah, and he's got to work with Donald Trump. And one of the things is you can't work with Donald Trump if you piss him off, and it's easy to piss the guy off. Yeah. So what Rubio has done is he's he's limited his criticisms greatly, uh, and he has grown into a pretty close advisor of the presence, or he had before the Turkey criticism. I'd like to see what happens afterward. And as a result of that close working relationship, Rubio being the chairman of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee and Foreign Relations in the Senate, yeah. he's got a great amount of influence in Western Hemisphere. In fact, one of the untold stories, one of the reasons the United States didn't follow as uh, aggressive a gunboat-style diplomacy as the other Florida Senator Rick Scott wanted in Venezuela is that Rubio, from what we understand, had sort of advocated against it. And his word with Trump, at least when it comes to Cuba, to Venezuela, to Central America, South America, to Latin America, holds sway. You know, I, that's the kind of the Faustian bargain here, right? You know, these guys, they they figure we have to govern. I have to bring home the bacon to my constituents, and we have to deal with this erratic lunatic in the White House who I personally can't stand, who insulted me and my, you know, my, my friends and family. But uh, this is what I have to do to get things done and survive. I, I guess it's just more survival, which is the cynical side of politics, I guess. It's, um, it's tough. Well, it's I, you know, I, and uh, as someone who's covered politics and in Florida that means covering cynical politics you know that that's that's all understandable but where where the real hypocrisy starts to come in is when you look at the volume of criticisms against their opponents right uh, again with Marco Rubio in fact i remember John Stewart of The Daily Show pointing out how Rubio's criticisms of Obama in Syria were, were just inconsistent. Yep. And, and how no matter what Obama did, he was just constantly criticized by Rubio for it. And, and then you see the way in which he's handling Trump. And it's just the kind of the volume, the vehemence of those criticisms that he had of the prior administration isn't have of the current one because it's a different political tribe. Right. But uh, Rubio is not unique or special in that regard. Right. Is he uh, is he popular still in Florida? Is he in trouble? Or that's a good question. I, I haven't seen polling as of late, but what I can tell you is that if you're going to make me bet in 2019 how Marco Rubio would do in 2022 if he decides to run for Senate again in a general election, I would say that Rubio is favored to win and favored to win pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. Rubio's weakness 
is his right flank, not a general electorate. Right. At least that's how it has been. Right. Uh, now, things change. I could see some polling. I could also change my mind. But that's just kind of where I see things today. Well, I think the Marco Rubio that I loved uh, in 2016 will come back if Donald Trump loses in 2020. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think a lot of people. I, you know, I, I think again. I think our politics are going to be different from forever. Yes. Just back to the debate, since we kind of went off on a Rubio tangent, because I just I had to because I, when I during the primary, I was in South Carolina during the uh, South Carolina primary in 2016, standing there looking at the stage, seeing Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio and Tim Scott thinking that this is the future of the Republican Party. And then all nope. my dreams and hopes were came to a crashing halt. Um, and I just said, oh, my God, we couldn't be any further from that moment today than. Uh, yeah, we're seeing a pretty fascinating realignment or an accelerated realignment of racial division along political lines. The Republican Party is just becoming so much more white. Uh, Immigration is so much more of an issue. And the Democratic Party is becoming so much more non-white. And it's it's a little concerning. And we really see it here in Florida. You know, we're kind of certainly a melting pot. And the... The Republican Party of Florida, relative to the entire state, is so much whiter. Well, you know, that that actually is a good segue into your um, into your article that you wrote recently for Politico called Trump Piles Up Enemies in Florida. And you break down uh, some of the difficulties that Trump may have going into this next election because he didn't win Florida by that much. It was what, a point? Right. He won by 1.2 percentage points, 1.19, if memory serves. Right. Right. Um, So uh, so who are these enemies that Donald Trump is is piling up in Florida? I think I can guess, but I'll let you I'll let you talk. Well, basically (laughs) non-white. But shocker. Yeah. If you if you look at the various groups that are aggrieved against Trump, there there's a really significant, large portion of the Hispanic electorate. Hispanics are about 17 percent of the registered voters in Florida. At least a third of them are of Puerto Rican descent. And the president's handling of Hurricane Maria Mm. and disaster recovery and then his conspiratorial uh, musings and doubting of the death toll, the estimated death toll in Puerto Rico really soured a lot of Puerto Ricans on him. In fact, uh, I think the last poll from a number of months ago of Puerto Rican voters in Florida, Florida voters who are of Puerto Rican descent, had President Trump's approval rating at like 21 percent, whereas in the general electorate in Florida, it's Trump's approval is relatively high. In in some surveys, he's actually hitting almost majority support. So you have Puerto Ricans, just a a very big population. And since 2017, when Hurricane Maria hit, the state has added 77,000 new Puerto Ricans. That's nothing. Uh, Just in that time span. That's how many votes Donald Trump won by (laughs) overall. Almost. I I mean, it is really a growing population. Then, if if you're just kind of looking at at, at different groups, and you, you can't call Puerto Ricans immigrants, right? Because they are U.S. citizens. Right. But let's say people from the, the Caribbean, Latin America and the like, uh, Haitian Americans. In 2016, Donald Trump was one of the few Republican presidential candidates who came to the Haitian community. 
in Miami and said, I will be your greatest champion. Then he turned around and uh, apparently called Haiti a shithole mm-hmm. and has blocked and opposed the extension of uh, temporary protective status for uh, Haitian immigrants who had been displaced from the earthquake back in 2010. Right. Which is so th- there's a lot of hand-wringing over that. Uh, Venezuelan Americans were a group that Republicans were starting to at least rhetorically make inroads with in Florida. Now, they're not as big a group as Cuban-Americans or Venezuelan-Americans, but nevertheless, they're a, a growing and active group because the, the president was cracking down on Maduro, the dictator of Venezuela, mm-hmm. and he was talking tough. But a lot of Venezuelans thought there was going to be more action, and you know what? Maduro's still there, and the president so far has refused to extend TPS to Venezuelan-Americans, so you have them. Bahamians also want TPS after Hurricane Dorian wrecked part of their island chain. Well, that's not happening. Right. And Bahamians and Jamaican-Americans, Jamaicans have a pretty good foothold in the Fort Lauderdale area. Yep. Uh, They have kind of common cause with their fellow Caribbean, uh, African-descendant, English-speaking immigrants from the Caribbean. And so you've kind of got this mix of aggrieved groups who, if you put them together, could start to really make a difference. Remember this. Florida is a state that's one at the margins. And so any little marginal difference you make can make a huge difference in the outcome of who wins. Now, that all that having been said, as I had mentioned before, is we are seeing a racial realignment or accelerated acceleration of it on our voter rolls and in vote preference. And if white voters, non-Hispanic white voters, continue to trend Republican, well, President Trump can afford to lose these smaller groups simply because well, white voters have a higher propensity for turning out and a higher propensity for voting Republican. Do you think that even with someone like Trump, though, who's such a lightning rod, that that, that those um, numbers would would stay? I mean, that's the conventional wisdom. That's how it's been in the past. I used to live in Florida, so I, you know, I'm familiar with some of those dynamics. And I just, I was shocked to see how close Andrew Gillum came to winning that that governor's race. I mean, half a percentage point he lost by. I never thought I'd see a black governor win in in, in, uh, Florida. But he paying off. Right. Well, you know, had it not been for a federal investigation that was tied to City Hall when Andrew Gillum was the Tallahassee mayor and had Gillum done more of a job trying to turn out Puerto Rican voters in central Florida, you might have seen him win. Yeah. Now, Gillum is a uh, was a special candidate because he's really dynamic and yes. personable. Yeah. He's a and, and now. So I, I I've gotten a chance to see. Oh, him. there we go. Well, you got to say you yeah. love him. Right. Uh, and, and then in addition, well, I don't agree with his politics, that, but he's a nice guy. <laughs> well, what was interesting about his politics, unabashedly progressive and liberal. I mean, did not hide it at all. Yep. So it, it gives progressives a little hope, like, you know, maybe Florida is not as moderate or as conservative as people think. And so if Elizabeth Warren becomes the nominee, you're okay. certainly going to hear some folks uh, talking about that, or uh, at least you're going to hear more of it. There is concern among Florida Democrats that Elizabeth Warren does not have the chops to be able to win a swing state like Florida when compared to Joe Biden. That's right, which uh, which leads me back to the debate, uh, because Joe Biden has faltered in these debates. And as you started to say, he you know, his numbers have been steady, but Elizabeth Warren has been on an, on an increase. And 
it's simply because she's just a more dynamic speaker than he is in these in these settings. She can explain things um, in ways that make it easy for people to understand, um, and people are they like it. Even though her policies, she can't you know they may not they may be problematic, but I, I, I just wonder because Florida's not the only place. I spent time in Ohio, and I just talked about this in my opening. People in Ohio who don't like Donald Trump that are center right said, look, I can vote for Joe Biden, but I can't vote for Elizabeth Warren. I'll vote for Trump again. Right. And I do. I do. I understand on one hand why Warren hasn't done more tacking back toward the middle. But on the other hand, I, I, I kind of don't understand it. If the trends seem to be the way they are and if she is indeed as confident as her campaign and her the kind of the body posture of her campaign lets on it's it's interesting she's decided to kind of stay as the very progressive plans candidate rather than go more into biography and in move a little more at least in tone right if not in policy more toward the center i have been kind of surprised by that incidentally i think the real story from tuesday night was not the debate the real story from tuesday night is what happened after the debate and that's when the federal election commission uh, fec reports uh, came out the campaign finance reports and joe biden's spent his joe biden's campaign spent almost two million more than it raised in the third quarter of 2019 that's a bad so that is problematic rate. that's what we say in the the parlance of campaigns the burn rate his burn rate is right he he, he really burned high. more than he earned and in addition to that is he was sitting on only 8.9 million dollars at the end of the quarter and that's almost four times less than the cash on hand that Bernie Sanders has. Wow. It's more than three times the amount, or it's less than three times the amount that Elizabeth Warren has. And Pete Buttigieg has more than double that amount. So if there's a real problem for Biden, it's not so much the polls, not so much the bad debate performances. It's those two things combined with the fact that the money is just not flowing. And in the end, you got to sustain these campaigns with something. And to the degree that small dollar donors are sort of voting with their pocketbooks, he is not getting that level of support that these other candidates are getting. And it presages really rocky times ahead as we head into 2020. That's very interesting. Um, you know, the people need to realize that you have to have money in these campaigns as much as people don't like to admit this, but it's true. And, um, you know, in a crowded field like this, Biden it, it, not being able to raise the kind of money he needs is certainly a problem for his campaign. Uh, another problem for his campaign has been his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, I've been very critical of how they've handled this. Uh, you're on the trail. You've been covering it. How do you think they're handling this? Are they really worried about this story? They should be if they're not. Well, they're, they are. They're worried about it. And they've done the Biden campaign's done a great job of really getting in the face of reporters who dare say the word hunter right and and essentially if you if you even 
commit the act of, of, of asking about Hunter, you're basically branded as, as some sort of Trump mole. Uh, and you even saw this at debate night more broadly with Democrats who just attacked Anderson Cooper for asking about it. And, you know, the he problem that the president it. had is what's that? I, I mean, Anderson had to ask that question. Hunter Biden did a did a Good Morning America interview, for God's sakes, that was national news. How is he not going to ask that question? I don't know why people are criticizing. Oh, cool. Well, this is welcome to the world of everyone living in their own information <laughs> silos. Right. right? right. Uh, and and and, you know, this this is kind of where we are. But I mean, the reality is, is that there are legitimate questions about it. But the president has been uh, so charitably speaking, inaccurate <laughs> and misleading about Hunter Biden's uh, role in Ukraine relative to his dad's role in Ukraine as vice president, that it has created the space for people to say, just if you just bring this up, you're part of some big, vicious, terrible smear, and that's it. So that's in part how the Biden campaign is reacting. They did fundraise off of the controversy, but you are hearing more and more Democrats, more and more Biden supporters come out and say, you know what, he should have been far more aggressive, far earlier, yep. and made him and Trump the story from day one. Now, the reason, and we wrote about this in Politico, that Joe Biden didn't do this is in part he's an institutionalist, and he wanted the the process to, to work. He wanted, didn't want to get in the way of the House. He didn't want to be the center of this story as well, because the issue of his son is still kind of painful. Remember, he lost oh, yes. another son. And so he, there was there were a lot of incentives for him personally not to instantly get involved in a high fashion or like a high visibility way. But if you talk to enough people, I think the consensus is, is that the, the calculation was wrong and it wasn't enough. Now, if you look at his polling, uh, Joe Biden's polling among Democrats hasn't really changed. But there's an interesting thing that most people didn't describe or discuss in a Quinnipiac poll that was recently released. If you look at his Democratic numbers, they haven't really changed. But his independent numbers have gone from a net positive to a net negative. Right. So it's starting to have a negative folks. effect, I think. Right. And, that you know, I, that's where I, as a political communications person, looked at this and said they should have nipped this in the bud immediately and not let the narrative get away from them, which I felt like it did. It was starting to seep into the zeitgeist that there was some kind of corruption going here on here and wrongdoing. And, I, you know, it's legitimate to question whether whether Hunter Biden got favors because of his last name. But any actual of corruption. Right, I think he even admitted it. Yeah, he did. And we all know that. And they should have admitted that Joe Biden should have come out. But that's, the, but that's, but that's the problem. It. The problem is the problem is it's a fundamentally swampy deal yeah. that Hunter Biden has profited off of. And in addition to that, it's not the only time. Right. Uh, throughout Joe Biden's Senate career, these these arrangements occurred. In fact, uh, the Trump War Room Twitter account that is uh, part of the Trump campaign tweeted out uh, a video clip from a Meet the Press interview with then Senator Joe Biden and Tom Bro- Brokaw of NBC, who pointed out, like, look, you were shepherding through a credit card company sought bill on finances at the same time that the credit firm MBNA hired your son Hunter as a lobbyist. Like, uh, how is that right? So th- this is not the only incident. And obviously, this isn't going to go away. And unfortunately, for any Democrats who are listening to this thinking it's terrible for me to even mention these things, well, this is our job. I mean, this is part of being yeah, fair and accurate. Absolutely. And uh, they, they've got to do a better job of handling this. This is crisis, crisis management 101. And it will cost them the election if he doesn't get a grip. 
grip on it. Uh, and uh, we have a couple minutes left that I just wanted to touch really quick since we're talking about swampiness and you're in South Florida. Um, this, these guys with Rudy Giuliani, Parnas and Fruman that have that were arrested and are under indictment for campaign finance fraud uh, violations, I'm sorry, and with illicit Russian money. And there's a lot of Russian mob down there in South Florida. All oh, yeah. God knows what goes on there. Um, Mar-a-Lago is wide open to that kind of stuff. Uh, what have you come across in your reporting concerning these two guys? Now, I haven't been covering uh, Parnas and Fruman because I've just been on Biden. Sure. Uh, what I have done is followed closely the twists and turns and the machinations of these guys since it's unfolded in other media. I think the Miami Herald, the Miami Herald which is uh, I'm an alumni of, so I don't mind giving them props, has certainly led the way on this. I think the most interesting thing is that Parnas and Fruman had given somebody on the order of $50,000 to Ron DeSantis during his gubernatorial campaign against Andrew Gillum. And DeSantis's campaign or DeSantis said that they were going to return that money or give it up to the Treasury, kind of renounce that 50K uh, from these two now indicted guys. And his spokeswoman had told the Miami Herald and others that, oh, Ron DeSantis didn't know these guys. Like, yeah, maybe there was a picture or two. Well, it turns out there were more than just a mm-hmm. picture or two. And now the Miami Herald on Wednesday collared the governor at an event in Palm Beach County somewhere in West Palm Beach where he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew this guy. I knew Parnas. Oh. So, oh you know, God. we've gone to like, we've gone from like, who are these guys? Like, what are you talking about? To like, oh, we need to give the money back. I didn't know them. Okay. Well, yeah, actually, I did know them. The thing is, is as you said, is there's a lot of Russian mobsters and the like, and a lot of Russians who are probably law-abiding as well in South Florida, who are law-abiding as well, I should mm-hmm. say, in South Florida. And, but Florida's real estate state market, especially the Miami area, is just ripe for fraudulent transactions. In fact, so much so that the Securities and Exchange Commission promulgated new rules to crack down on cash-only real estate deals here because this is just a money laundry factory here. In fact, when the when the, the when the economy collapsed at one point, uh, you know, in 2008, 2009, 20% of all cash-only real estate deals happened in the Miami market. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you, this is a place of just shell corporations. You know, you talk about, like, you want to go on the beach and find shells. You can find lots of shell corporations right <laughs> off of the beach, you know, on Ocean Drive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of shady money here. So it, it surprises absolutely no one that some of that shady money wound up in a politician's uh, campaigns pockets. Apparently lots of politicians campaign pockets because they gave money to Pete Sessions and, and McCarthy and $500,000 to all kinds of Republicans and $300,000 to Trump's super PAC. I mean, these guys had their dirty fingers and a lot of shit and it's all going to come out. Yeah, well, um, I, I could say that these guys are truly Florida men. <laughs> oh, man. Well, speaking of being a Florida man, you are from Key West originally, which I found out recently, and my family had a house in the Florida Keys since 1998 in Marathon. So I've spent a lot of time in Key West and it is such a unique place. Many fantasy fests. I'm so glad that when I was at fantasy fest, people didn't really have cell phone video like they do now. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) Like that's really cool. We have to, next time you're in Washington or if I'm in South Florida, we're going to have to grab a, grab a drink and and talk about the good old Key West and, and the Florida Keys. Well, actually, yeah, we, you know what? I think uh, we've got a few more weeks until Fantasy Fest actually happens. Maybe we could try to get together a float or something. I know. Well, my friends in, down there in the Keys, they do a float every year. And I've, you know, I've since now, I'm over 40. I've had to kind of back off <laughs> that kind 
kind of stuff. But my husband and I do go down for New Year's almost every year because it's one of the best places in the country to go for New Year's. We do a sunset cruise. It is absolutely the best place to go for New Year's as well as July 4th because yes. it's you can see the you can see the fireworks from everywhere. And Key West has historically always been or has historically been a very patriotic town. It was a Navy town for many, many years. That's and that, right. that sort of uh, the zeitgeist kind of stuck with it or that, that sense of patriotism that should say stuck with it. Hey, speaking of Halloween and all that stuff, uh, you, I thought you were going to ask me about, uh, about the biggest joker of them all, Dan Bongino, I'm about to Florida get man. To it. Yes, because um, <laughs> uh, I know I know you got to run, but we got to talk about this. So in 2016, Dan Bongino was running for Congress in Florida after he'd already lost a Senate race in Maryland. He's a former Secret Service agent, and he's he found his way into conservative media and the Tea Party circles using his credentials as a former Secret Service agent to make him sound like a tough guy who. You know, going after Obama. I think he also wrote a book about yes. Obama, didn't he? That yeah. was his big thing. Yeah, that's right. He wrote a book, which was, by the way, much to the chagrin of the Secret Service because they don't they frown upon that kind of stuff. But um, so he's running now in Florida, and you questioned him about what? What happened? Well, you know, I, I should go back and, and really double check my facts because one of the reasons this dispute happened is, is he didn't know his facts and he was spouting off. Right. So generally speaking, he made some allegations that were essentially untrue about a reporter who worked at another publication. At the time in 2016, uh, up until relatively recently, I was not only a full-time reporter in Florida, I was also helping put together Politico's Florida Playbook. Right. Uh, daily email. And so I had to monitor all the media from around the state. And I saw this guy just peeing off on this reporter who I knew. And I actually, I knew Dan as well. And, and it was just, it was just such vicious bullying that you see too often on social media and that you sometimes see, especially from men toward women. And so I, I kind of butted in. I was like, hey, is this a private fight or can anyone get involved? And I asked him basically what his beef was. Right. And he he never really explained how whatever it was she had reported was a lie. Wasn't it something and so we about had like these his residency? These... Wasn't it something about like his residency? It wasn't about his residency. It was about the it was about the level of support he had locally for his campaign for Congress. Okay. Okay. You see, and he was essentially running for a congressional seat in the Naples area in southwest Florida. Right. But at the same time he was living on the northern fringes of southeast right. Florida. Which is right. like why Got you co- like number one you covered bag to the state now you're carpet bagging over to Naples like what's going on here, right? Right. And so, um, so finally, he and I wind up talking on the phone. And you know, prior to this, I told him in in one of our strange Twitter text exchanges, like, you know, send me your number, I'll record you know, this conversation. So I did, and I kept trying to get an answer out of him, and would finally set him off. When I kept asking him this question, he wouldn't answer it. I was like, look, Dan, why don't I handle the questions and you handle the answers? And oh boy, that. he just Ooh, he, he just it. lost it. <laughs> And I, I probably made, you know, I, at a certain point, I just decided to, to, to argue back with him and, you know, uh, pointed out he was a three-time loser and a carpetbagger. So, I mean, I, I understood that. You got sucked in a little bit. Was, you got sucked in a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, right? sure. But, you know, and the other problem is, is the way, the way I recorded it is I had my voice closer to my recorder and my hand, like I didn't have like a, a recording app. Right. So, 
we decided to post the thing online anyway. I knew it would cost me some points with the far right uh, and some very dishonest people. By the way, I'm not saying there's a perfect or even imperfect uh, Venn diagram overlap between the two. But I certainly saw some of the dishonest people in media who, because Don Gino was a Republican and simply because I'm a reporter, just decided to just attack me, you know, always to Sunday. But I knew what I was getting into. But at the same time, it kind of needed to be shown, like, this guy is genuinely mentally not stable. Right. I mean, he's unglued. Yep. Completely unglued. And it was, I I remember where I was when I heard it, you know, I'm like, it's funny. It is. It is pretty funny. Oh yeah. No, he's just like threading me. He's like, you're going to be in the next chapter of my book. Like, Oh no, not the chapter of Dan's book. Right, right, right. Well, he blocked me on Twitter. Um, because we, of course, that's one of his things. I forgot even what it was about. I called him out on something and then, I was, he's just so blatantly dishonest about it. And, and then I got the block. I'm like, oh, that's it. My day is ruined. Okay, I've I got to play the audio clips. Check these out. I, these are a couple of clips. The whole conversation is about 17 minutes long. But let me put the clips in here. All right, so so you won't answer, answer me publicly. So what did she get her wrong in her story? Well, Mark, we asked you Okay, but you didn't give me your number. You gave me your number now. So now we're clearing this up. What did she get wrong in her story? Her story, her initial tweet, which is what you asked me about. I didn't ask you about her initial tweet. I asked you about the story it was connected to. What was the the story? What was wrong with it? Mark. Yes. Want an answer? I want an answer to the question, and you're not answering the question. Favor, answer my question first, and then you can continue with your slurs and insults. So where in the story, where in the story is there propaganda? Let me ask the question. I'll handle the questions and you handle the answers, okay? Because that's what this is about. Why are you yelling, Dan? Don't get so angry. Oh, now you're swearing. Good Lord. So again. You can't accept the quote again that Caputo is an asshole. And I quote, always. He thinks he is part of the story to ignore this loser. I, I can ex- I can accept the fact that people are critical of me. It seems like you're unable to accept the no, fact that people, people ask general questions. They think you're an asshole. That's different. Well, I would say that's they critical. Think you're an asshole. Well, maybe in your world that's not critical. I guess. Yeah, and with your, I mean, didn't Hannity embarrass you on Twitter too? Well, uh, there are other people who think otherwise, but. If you, yeah, I remember listen, he regretted it, too, because we think to ourselves all the time, like, why would a guy with a following like me mention a hack like you and give you followers? That's what I always okay. debate. I always debate that. Like, should I give this guy a following? And the answer is no, I really shouldn't. But given that you're such a hack and such a liar, I think sometimes I have to make an example out of people. I'm so, okay, so you're going to win this race because you're a winner, right? Yeah, you know what, Mark? What if I you lose? Well, this will be your third race and in a row. Third race in a row in two smart. states, you lose, right? You know, seriously. Your third, ra- you your third race in a row? So because I look at you and I'm embarrassed. Look your third, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 You were that kid who was beat up a lot in high school, right? Oh, you'd be surprised. So because we used to get guys like you in the Secret Service, and we'd have to fire them because they were so pathetic. I they usually go into journalism. So you can't take it, kid. Oh, it hurts, doesn't it? Oh, I know it hurts. Well, no, I'm not the one. I'm not the one swearing and being angry. So let's see. You're going to lose yes, this race as well, hurts. right? Because you sound angry. Yes, you sound so Brother, angry. I about know. It. I get it. I feel your pain, man. All right. I know. Registered voter Wait, in the Mark, district. You, you, you're right about politics. Are right? you a registered you know, voter in the district? 
Uh, you don't know the rules. Uh, no. You're, you're not. You're not a registered voter in the district. So let's see. You moved down to Florida after losing two campaigns in Maryland. You say you're going to stay in Maryland and fight. You tuck tail, run away to Florida. You go look to run in District 18. You see you're not going to be able to win you know there. You try to run in District 19. You're you losing no there. You're like a professional political candidate who loses, Dan. You just because lose. You have no idea why I moved to Florida. You, uh, I know you moved here and, and you it, wanted to run for. You up, wanted to run. For, oh, Dad! You see, why are you yelling now? Go fuck yourself. Oh, Dad! Dad, is that is that like an offer or something? Is that an offer? Motherfucker! <laughs> you shut your mouth. <laughs> you fucking coward! Hey, Dad, do me a favor. I'll Don't handle the questions and you handle the answers. I'm not just hey, calm down. You. Oh, Dan. You really sound like mother, you need some help. Motherfucker. I think hey, you need some help. Fuck yourself. Okay. You hear me? Do you realize you sound that. like you need medication? You don't know why. And let me tell you. You sound like you need medication, I'm, I'm Dan. Wait till I do you, do you need, you, maybe you need some professional help? You have no idea. Shut the fuck up. I'm I think nothing. you need professional help. I think you need don't professional help. Don't fuck yourself. You don't know why I'm in Florida. Because I'm I know you're in race. Florida running a race and that you're losing in it by your attitude because you're swearing and hey, acting out. Fuck you. And I also know that you looked at running in another district and you knew you couldn't fuck win there either. You. Hey, listen to so me. So let's see. Let's three... I'm going to expose you now. Okay. And when I tell everybody the real reason I'm down here, I'm going to expose your fucking ass even more. All right. You, 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 you're, you're, you're free to do that. And you can continue to threaten. Yourself. You can continue to threaten me if, you, if you'd like. You're a piece of shit. Because okay. you're a lying scumbag, and it's people like you... You haven't even established where I lied. We've already established in the record where you've lied. Yeah, you're and now you're acting out and you're swearing. Piece of shit. You know what? Go fuck yourself. All right. Well, you hung up on me. And there you have it. <laughs> Oh my God. But he's a, you know, Dan Bongino is a really special character because he's one of those guys that kind of un, instinctively understood that there is a market for people who thrive off of this type of partisan conflict and disinformation. One of the things that was relatively r- recent, uh, newly released, was the Senate Intel Committee's report on the 2016 uh, election hacking election. I don't like to use hacking, election meddling, somewhere in between, of Russia. Yeah, interference. Now, there was no real big holy shit news out of it. But what was really interesting about that Senate report, and I urge everyone to read it, especially if you work in media, was it's brought home the appetite that a large segment of the American electorate has for totally fake news as long as it fulfills their yen oh, for confirmation bias. Yes, yes. And um, there, there are going to be volumes written about this. People are already starting to write books and, and things about this. But the psychology behind the the thirst for fake news and the confirmation it's amazing. bias is really amazing. Yeah, I think, I think they, there's, some, there's some stat in that report about two of the most shared social media stories right before the 2016 election were both fake. Uh, and one of them was that was a false one that the Pope had endorsed Trump, who, of course, he had picked a fight with earlier. Right. And <laughs> another one was about how Hillary Clinton had armed ISIS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like people picked this up. They loved it. That's like information is now ammunition. Yeah. Yes. And um, we've, we, we're, we're dealing in an asymmetrical warfare situation. Right. And we're in the crossfire, right? Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, my friend, uh, you are definitely in the crossfire. You're out there on the campaign trail. Uh, let's touch base again, because I know that Florida is going to be the center of the election, as it always is. Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, you've def- you definitely have some busy days ahead of you for the next year, Mark. <laughs> 
Oh, it's Florida. It's always busy. <laughs> Indeed, my friend. Well, uh, keep it, keep safe. Keep up the good work. And uh, thanks so much for joining me. We'll definitely have you back on the show. Awesome, Tara. Thank you very much. I thanks. appreciate it. Again, I just wanted to give a thank you to Mark Caputo from Politico for for joining me this week and and uh, talking about Biden and the campaign and giving his insights from Florida. Normally, I end the program with a feel good story of the week, but. As I was going to post-production for the podcast, I found out the news that Representative Elijah Cummings has passed away at the age of 68. And many people may know Representative Cummings as his, as his role, in his role, I'm sorry, as the Oversight Committee chairman, uh, which he took over after Republicans gained control of Congress. And But for those of us who have been in politics for a long time, Representative Cummings has been a, uh, a a tough but fair congressman for many years since 1996, and he had he lived an extraordinary life. He was born to sharecroppers who moved to Baltimore in the 1940s, and he started his involvement in the civil rights movement as a teenager. Um, and he's been a champion of civil rights and dedicated to his constituents. He was in the Baltimore. House of Delegates, I mean, excuse me, the Maryland House of Delegates initially, and then uh, won his seat to Congress in 1996. But there's some interesting aspects of of Representative Cummings' life that I think need to be highlighted as, as we now mourn his death. And as someone who obviously was a Republican and and did not agree all the time with Representative Cummings' political positions, there was no doubt that he was a stalwart champion for his constituents and for civil rights and 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 the less among us in this country. And there is an interesting story that I did not know about him until recently about what happened to him when he was in elementary school uh, that I think is something, it's a lesson for a lot of people. Um, it was reported that when he was in grade school that uh, a school counselor actually told him that he was too slow to learn, that he spoke poorly, and he would never fulfill his dream of becoming a lawyer. Not only did he overcome that, but he rose to become one of the most powerful chairmen in the United States Congress. And he said that he was absolutely devastated after that. Could you imagine being an elementary school kid and being told that, you know, that's horrible. But he said he was devastated. But he also said that his life, his whole life changed after that and that he became very determined. And I think that the people of Baltimore and the Congress and the country are better served for the type of leadership that and and integrity and character that Representative Cummings represented Um, and the way he handled the oversight committee. And his responsibility, I thought, was was gracious and determined as well and fair, even though tough, but fair. So it is a huge loss to um, to everyone. And my condolences to his family. My friend and colleague at CNN, April Ryan, had some uh, words because she knew Congressman Cummings very well. April's from Baltimore. And she was able to express some words of, of insight and wisdom that I, I'd like to share uh, on, on CNN regarding Representative Cummings.
wanted to go back to, you know, to meet again. So Elijah Cummings was willing to go across the aisle and deal with people. And, and even before, he's from that time when people came together, people's hearts came together, even though they may not have seen eye to eye. He wanted to work for the people. Um, but today my heart is, we have lost a fighter. We've lost, I mean, and this is not about party. This is about person and humanity. Uh, this is a man who, whose mother, he grew up for people, but his mother used to, his late mother would take him and his brothers and sisters to uh, the pools in Baltimore, swimming pools in Baltimore that were not uh, uh, integrated, that were segregated pools to help him understand that you too belonged, you too meant something. And he used to tell me sometimes those ugly things of the past would haunt him, but he realized who he was and it was about the fight for the people. And that's why he was friends with Mark Meadows. That's why he talked to uh, President Trump about prescription drugs. Um, he was a fighter and you don't have anyone of that caliber, um, like Elijah Cummings. It's just, um, it's a loss for Baltimore. Mm -hmm. It's a loss for the nation. It's a loss for the world. Moving words from my friend April Ryan in a tribute to her friend, Representative Elijah Cummings. And he certainly lived a life where he overcame adversity and will leave behind quite the legacy. Um, I'm going to end on a quote that Representative Cummings said in reference to the state of the country we're in today. He said, when we are dancing with the angels, the question will be asked in 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Amen, Representative Cummings. Dead at age 68, he certainly will be missed. I'll see you next week. 